Welcome to another episode of the Journal of Neurophysiology's podcast series. Today, we are joined by Dr. Jessica Thompson, author of the recently published manuscript titled Forms of Explanation and Understanding for Neuroscience and Artificial Intelligence. Hosting today's podcast is Editor-in-Chief Professor Nino Ramirez and Associate Editor Professor John Krakauer. So let's get started. Hi, Nino. Hi, Jamie. Thank you so much. And Jessica and John, many thanks for participating in our podcast series. And I think this will be a very special podcast since your essay, Jessica, is the first Neurocene article that we accepted for publication in our journal. And it perfectly fits what John and I had in mind when we introduced this article form. And your Neurocene is entitled uh, Explanation and Understanding for Neuroscience and AI. And uh, we will talk a lot about explanation and understanding, but before we go there, maybe let's start with how your essay actually begins, which is your own experience in computational neuroscience and the search for purpose during a training as a graduate student. And your experience is and will be shared virtually by every young and also the older scientist. And so why don't we begin with you telling us more about your quest early in your career which you call the crisis of purpose and how you then uh, got into philosophy to try to explain this crisis or, or uh, your future. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm glad that I had the opportunity to write about that in this essay, because I think a lot of people do experience a similar kind of period of questioning and it's easy to feel isolated. And so I'm, I'm glad that this kind of venue provided an opportunity for that. At the beginning of my PhD, I think I imagined that my research was successful to the extent that I was able to statistically capture the variance in my data, or in other words, to, to make accurate predictions of those data. But eventually, as I progressed, maybe partly due to the controversy surrounding the use of machine learning, and in particular, deep neural networks in neuroscience research, um, and maybe partly due to the diverse perspectives of my various collaborators and mentors, I began to wonder sort of what, what were these predictions for? You know, why was I seeking these accurate predictions? If I had magically stumbled upon a model that statistically captured all the variants in my data, would I have achieved some goal? Would I have answered some question or at least contributed something meaningful to my scientific community? And I realized that I just, I didn't really have any idea how to begin to answer those questions. That was kind of my, my crisis of purpose. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's what led me to, to read more philosophy of science, philosophy of neuroscience, which I think was helpful because it describes clearly various scientific goals, um, provides detailed accounts of what criteria must be met for those goals to be achieved um, and how scientists make progress towards those goals, either via historical analysis of how they have made progress in the past and then developing that into normative theories of how to make progress. Jessica, so, I think by your crisis actually helped all of us because you kind of wrote down a lot of the, the issues that we're facing all the time. And in your essay, you focus on the epistemic goals, like gaining understanding, and, and finding explanation. And so maybe it would be helpful if you could explain to the listener, you know, what the differences are between understanding and 
explanation and then we can go deeper into explanation and understanding but maybe just as an outset what are the differences sure you know as i presented them in my paper a scientific explanation is always relative to some phenomenon or event to be explained uh, so an explanation is often said to answer a why question a why question of the form uh, why did X occur? Why did the apple fall? Why does the pendulum swing? Uh, why do animals sleep? And that's opposed to scientific understanding, which is slightly harder to define. And there's a lot of different perspectives on it. But the short answer is that understanding is a, a cognitive achievement of an individual or a group. And if we go with Direct's view, who I cite in the paper, then to understand a phenomena first requires that you are in possession of a satisfactory explanation of that phenomenon, plus a number of pragmatic or contextual factors that will influence whether or not this phenomenon is understood. But having the correct explanation may not be enough. Um, this kind of directs point that certain background knowledge or skills or a particular social context may also be required. Absolutely. You know, and I think we'll go deeper into the understanding, but let's start with the explanation. And, and in your essay, you discuss like three distinct types of explanations. You know, you talk about the causal explanation, the functional explanation, and the middle, minimal model explanation. Maybe could you describe those? And also, could you go one step further and describe what it means what do you mean with an etiological explanation versus a constitutive explanation? Because that comes important in, in your essay. Sure. So I, I chose those three types of explanation, not because they kind of are um, the entire set. You know, there's a lot of theories, but they seem very uh, commonly uh, referred to in neuroscience, and they span this spectrum from kind of more concrete to more abstract. So the, the causal um, explanation is, is, is really about situating some phenomena in the causal structure of the world. Um, and if we go with the causal mechanical view, then an explanation is a description of the mechanism by which some uh, event or phenomenon occurs. So it, it will be description of the component parts and their operations, their, their causal relationships that yield whatever it is you're trying to explain. Um, functional explanation would be sort of kind of one step more abstract where it progresses by first decomposing some phenomenon into some set of simpler operations and then showing how this decomposition, uh, these component operations, when so combined, produce the, the phenomenon to be explained. So it's, it's in some ways similar to the causal explanation, but instead of component parts, we're working with component operations. So it's kind of slightly abstracted from the specific physical components. Um, minimal model explanation is then the most abstract form of explanation that I describe, where the goal is to arrive at some minimal model, meaning kind of as 
we want one model that can accommodate or account for a variety of physically distinct instantiations of some phenomenon. So you're looking for the, the common reason that some physically distinct set of observations display the same behavior. Perfect. Um, you know, and we will we'll talk about this, I think, when we talk about the computational models, which is something, of course, very, very important. And maybe why don't I give you quickly a real life example, because this is as an editor or as a reviewer for grants, etc. We face this all the time that two reviewers love something and then one reviewer says, but it's, that really doesn't explain it. And let's say, uh, for example, a set of investigators find that an area X gets activated during a certain behavior and they do experiments show if you lesion it, it's necessary for the behavior, it's also sufficient. And then, of course, these investigators claim or believe that they found a causal explanation for this behavior. But others, you know, may argue that this is still descriptive because they did not address the question, how did these area get activated? And others may even argue that area X is only one of several areas involved. So you just have still not an explanation for the behavior. So, so we have this very often ongoing in science and, and it starts to have heated debates, you know, where one reviewer rejects, the other reviewer loves it. And, but I think at the root of this problem is that there is often a set of explanation needed for a phenomenon, you know, like... There's not a final explanation, but there might be multiple explanation. And if you think about this, then it seems like explanations are stepping stones for further research. So maybe could you elaborate on this and perhaps describe also how different types of explanation, causal and functional, play a role in trying to understand a given phenomenon? And do you have an idea, how do we know when we reach a final and true explanation? And is this an attainable goal or are there simple ways to distinguish between explanation and mere descriptions? Yeah, there's a lot of things to, to respond to there. The first thing I would say is that uh, establishing a causal relationship is not the same thing as providing a causal explanation. So, you know, A causes B, if true, is a fact about the world. For example, smoking causes cancer. Uh, stating this fact doesn't necessarily explain anything. I mean, it may, but it's not clear what question is being answered. However, if you were to ask um, more specifically, you know, what, why are smokers more likely to get cancer? The answer to that question would be, would be an explanation. So a, a causal explanation will likely involve a network of causal relationships, uh, but, but only those that are relevant to the phenomenon to be explained. So, uh, you know, a list of causal relationships in the system that you're studying also isn't sufficient to be an explanation. So it's, you know, explanation is really about what's the question that you want to answer and then, um, you know, specifically what are the What's the, the causal network, the mechanism that, that produces that specific phenomenon? So that's one thing. Another thing um, 
yeah, no, no phenomenon probably is going to be explained in a single study. So I don't think we should necessarily be expecting that from individual contributions. So if we're thinking about uh, explanation as sort of long-term collaborative goal, then you know, each study is going to be making a relatively small contribution to that, that ultimate goal. About your, your question of, you know, do we, how do we know if we get to the, the true or the final explanation? Do, do, do we ever get there or is it just incremental improvements? I don't know if we ever get to a final or true explanation, but it does seem like there are plenty of examples where we get to a good enough explanation, good enough meaning that we stop looking at that question, we're satisfied with the answer. So like in, in neuroscience, a classic example that many philosophers analyze is, is the, the action potential. The action potential is a neural phenomenon that was unexplained a hundred years ago, but which I feel comfortable saying is explained today. We have a sufficient description of the mechanism by which the action potential occurs. We've written it down in textbooks and haven't needed to update that description for many years. So I think we get to something that's that's good enough that we can build on and then we stop maybe giving funding to that. Um, I mean, it's a good yeah. example. and and But it's also a good example that often we think we're satisfied and then you find, okay, that dendritic action potentials, they're like calcium action potential, there's sodium action potential. You know, the action potential in the heart is different than the heart in the muscle. So I think often, you know, we, we, we find a good explanation, but then we realize, oh my God, it's way more complex. And, and, mm -hmm. uh, and that's so typical for neuroscience where, yeah. in fact, often it's a good start for a project to look at something that you think has been sufficiently explained. Mm -hmm. One point I think Jessica's making though is explanation is not synonymous with mechanism, it's not synonymous with reduction, it's much more pluralistic and contextually based. So for example, the case you just said about the action potential, sure, there may be slightly different ion channels and maybe slightly different variations, but the conceptual differential equations are the same and abstract. So in other words, it's exactly the point being made here is you, it's not clear that if you told me the exact multi, you know, the, the, the unit substructure of a, of a sodium ion channel or a potassium channel, that doesn't add to my understanding whatsoever of the action potential, because the level of explanation of the action potential is at a higher level abstraction that doesn't require that detail. That might be a helpful detail if you want to poison somebody, but it doesn't qualitatively change how you understand or give an explanation of the action potential. Okay, when oh. the original 1952 paper was written, you know, you had a wiring diagram, you had differential equations. They didn't know about the specific ion channels at that time, right? So in other words, I think, you know, and Jessica, forgive me, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but the point is, is that more details do not mean better explanations. Yeah. And, and John, I think that brings us also again to a real life experience that we all have, you know, I mean, you submit a grant and then the reviewers say, oh, this is just incremental. It will not have a conceptual advance. So, so we often like face this question, what is the conceptual advance that our, our research will actually uh, provide? And, 
and there's often a fine line. You can say, hey, look, the idea that there's a uniform hypothesis for action potential, we shake that by saying, oh, there are also calcium channels. But, you know, it's, it's, it's always, you're right, there's always like nuances to, to where is it a fundamental paradigm shift versus, you know, it's just in, incremental. And, uh, but I think it's good to, to just discuss this as, as one of the f- problems of real life that we face all the time. You know, where do we draw the line that we explain a phenomenon or what we don't? Jessica, I was just going to ask you this question. Would you agree then that if one had a more nuanced, context, skill-based idea of explanation and understanding, as Direct in his book talks about a lot, as you quote, that one would actually be able to be more thoughtful and more ecumenical and more pluralistic about what count as explanations and understanding, rather than what tends to happen, which is it becomes synonymous with reductionism and physical mechanism. Right. That in other words, that we would be more pluralistic if we thought more about these words rather than thinking of them as stand-ins for low-level mechanisms of physical impingement and reductionism. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I don't know if you even need to have uh I mean, I would love if people were more familiar with, with some of these ideas, but even just looking through kind of historical examples of what has been successful, um, you'll see a diversity of explanations. Um, mm-hmm. And if we, can, if we can embrace that there are, are going to be multiple ways of, of answering these kinds of questions. Yeah, I think part of it is also, do we imagine ourselves as in competition or in collaboration with the other people in our scientific community? And that if we envision science as this competitive process, which in reality it, it is, we, we compete for limited resources, but that kind of suggests or implies that we're, we're all looking for the best single way to, to approach some problem or to answer some question. And if instead we think of it more as a collaborative process, then we can um, maybe more easily em- embrace uh, a plurality of approaches and a plurality of explanation styles. Jessica, this is something so important what you just said, because I think a lot of young scientists are put off by science because it is so competitive and often you know, a bully uh, can become a leader, even though there are many explanations possible. But I think it's very important that, that you point out that there are many levels of explanation and, and that we should embrace that as a collaborative goal to find these different explanations. And because ultimately that's how science moves forward. And if I think about, you know, like coming back to the action potential thing, you know, like initially computation models were pretty simple, like integrate and fire. And, and that was it. And then uh, basically when you realize, oh, there's so much neuromodulation that changes how an action potential is generated, where it is generated, how is this generated? Then you start to make way more complex model that actually describes much more the nature of the phenomenon. And I think this is something that you also address very beautifully in your essay here, where Basically, you ask the question, how can we reach a meaningful understanding of a neural network? And do we have to compress the amount of information 
that a human can consume. And you mentioned that a human cannot conceptualize the interaction of 100 trillion synapses simultaneously. And our scientific goals should be adjusted and not require such a feat. And so one of the things you say is, you know, also that the greatest successes have been the result of describing complex systems with relatively few parameters. Like, let's say you can describe evolution pretty simple terms. And uh, to what extent does it really apply to neuroscience? And do you think it will ever be the case that understanding neural phenomena in simple terms is the true explanation of this complex process? So some people, um, some prominent researchers kind of in at the intersection of neuroscience and AI, I think are quite pessimistic about the possibility of being able to uh, arrive at a, a simple and succinct explanation for complex behavior like human cognitive abilities. And that has led them to embrace what's sometimes called the deep learning approach to neuroscience, or maybe just a learning approach to neuroscience. And I think that what I've tried to do in the essay is, is restate that approach in slightly different words, where I think part of it is part of what that approach is saying is that, well, we, we may not be able to use a few number of parameters to explain some cognitive ability, but perhaps we can explain with a few number of parameters how an, uh, an animal or an agent learns to do that, that task or that, that ability. Mm. So I think even, even if you're not so pessimistic that you think it's going to be impossible, it's still potentially valuable to consider, you know, is, is this uh, a more achievable goal to start by looking at learning? And then once we have made progress on that, it might, I, I guess my, my optimism would be that making progress on, on those kinds of questions about how do, we, how do we learn to produce complex cognitive behavior yeah. uh, would then help us to imagine potentially new ways of understanding and explaining the, these phenomena that, that may seem kind of unreachable or intangible. And I would push, push back on that a little bit. I mean, I know, you know, that people kind of like that curding and lily crap kind of, we may not be able to understand how the brain works, but we can understand how it learns to work, right? But, and it's true, right? And they make that point, right? Jess, can you talk about their paper in the, your essay, which is that it seems much easier to write out what the learning rule is than to write out how it's working at asymptote, right? In other words, mm -hmm. you just go, I don't know how it's doing it. Now it's gotten there, but I know how it got there, right? Um, but that's not very satisfying, right? In other words, and I also am not completely convinced, Jessica, that we're going to get to the asymptotic explanation by knowing what the learning rule is. Um, don't, 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 don't you think that the, the way around this is just to say, well, we do have explanations of the asymptotic behavior. It's called psychology, right? And let's just live with psychological explanations and we can have weight change rules at the level of neural networks for the learning part and just accept that we're never going to match granularities. Why not? If we're going to be as pluralistic as we're all claiming we are, then isn't there tacitly in the Cording and Lily Crap paper the idea that the best explanations are at a kind of mathematical and 
network granularity, and that's what we want when it comes to explaining the asymptotic behavior. But why not just accept that the asymptotic behavior will be at a more coarse-grained level of explanation forever? But what's, what's wrong with that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I know that this is, the, this is your response to, to that, John. I'm not sure I have, like, the, a, a perfect response, but um, I would say that, yeah, often we need to be clear about what are the phenomena we actually want to explain. Are they uh, cognitive phenomena? Are they behavioral phenomena? Or are they, are they neural phenomena? And if we are genuinely interested in some neural phenomenon, is it, um, you know, are, do we, you know, do we really care about the neural phenomena or do we only care about the neural phenomena because we think that's going to be the answer to the ultimate question about, about behavior, cognition, perception. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I have considered this and kind of come down on like, okay, I care about, I care about cognition and perception. That's like where I'm landing. And mm-hmm. I also do neuroscience. Um, I, you know, also, uh, you know, my, my work is primarily building, building models, but, you know, informed by behavioral research, informed by, by neuroscience research, by, by neural measurements and, and models. So, yeah, I think one mistake that we often make is thinking that if we explain the neural activity during some task or behavior that we've kind of automatically explained the behavior itself. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's a, that's a mistake maybe that we sometimes make. And if we're, mm-hmm. if we're genuinely um, interested in the, in the behavior and the cognition, then we should be open to you know, the various kinds of explanations for, for those behavior. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that I can like fully sign on to all we need is psychology. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I was, I I was just, you know, just exactly. I wasn't in any way trying to get you (laughs) to agree with me. God forbid. I'm not even sure I agree with myself. I was really, what I was really saying was that you have these different forms of understanding. And I was just wondering whether you thought depend that one of the sort of subversive you know implications of what you've written is that the explanation that will satisfy in so much that it will lead to understanding on the part of the scientist so that you know she can go on and generalize is that you might bottom out at different places depending on the question so when it comes to learning you may bottom out at a level which is about the architecture the algorithm and yet, if you want to understand the cognitive behavior that is the result of learning, the explanation way may bottom out at a more abstract level. I use the word psychology, but I was just wondering, at least that you and I would agree, that depending on your question, you may bottom out at different places in terms of the objects you explain with. Would that be fair to say, at least? Yeah, I think so. I think I have a line in the paper that's very similar to that, where I say kind of the the level of abstraction that's required for an explanation will be determined by the scope at which which you ask the question. Um, Yeah. Yeah. No, but I think it brings us back to this collaborative goal, you know, because there will be different people attacking this question from very different angles, you know, one from the psychology, one from the neural network people. And and I mean, I find, for example, very intriguing work done by Raphael Justi right now, working on Hydra, you know, like what are the common principles of neural networks to form activity? And can this give us some simple answers or algorithms that the entire brain still uses? 
And so, so this is like one approach to tackle this, which is not psychology, but it's a different one. So I think the beauty about neuroscience is it's interdisciplinary and, and we actually have to embrace all these different approaches because not a single approach will give us all the answers. You know? I had a question also, Jessica, with respect to exactly what Nino just said, which is a lot of the time when people are talking about AI, artificial intelligence, you know, when the good old fashioned AI came along, it was very human centric, right? It was very much about human cognitive capacities. Um, and then it really went away from thinking and it was more about classification. It was more about perception and a lot of the modeling would apply to rodents as well and to other animals. Um, what's your bet in terms of you know, deep neural networks, AI? Do you think it really should stick to the original mission going back to the mid 20th century of trying to get a human specific cognition? Or do you think it should go as Tony Zader has argued, we should have a deep neural network of a mouse brain first um, and get into the more generic intelligence field before we try and do the kind of intelligence requires that this Zoom call requires, right? In other words, do you have a position? I was kind of curious to know, given how much you've been in this field and you know you were you know in the heart of the beast in AI, what do you what do you think? Are you, do you think Zeta has a point or do you think we should be really trying to do benchmarks that are very human? Um, yeah, so I guess your question, I mean, of course, what the basic answer to this question is, oh, we should just do both. But your question is really, if you had to place a bet on which is going to lead to more progress, uh, which would you choose? Yeah, I don't know how I would place that bet. My own research is going a little bit more human-centered, but at the same time, I also think that kind of progress in kind of human and animal um, cognition, animal intelligence is also maybe leading us to a, a less anthropocentric idea of kind of intelligence. And that, you know, maybe, maybe it is wrong to, um, I mean, obviously there are capacities that seem to be uh, limited to humans, but maybe there is more of a continuum and that when we think about it that way, we can make progress on some of these high level human things out of the animal version of them. I'm not sure. Do you think that neuroscience is going to contribute to this? In other words, do you think that Mila and DeepMind and OpenAI worrying about these things are likely to hit on the solution? Do you feel like neuroscience has made a huge contribution currently in, in the direction of answering the kind, I mean, I'm putting in the impossible spot of, you know, the System 162, but it's true that Joshua's worrying about it very much in an AI environment. Do you, do, do you think neuroscience is helping a lot? I mean, what's your view on that right now? I think we can see its potential for sure. Yeah, I mean, my, my view on these things is that these, these fields are kind of merging for some people, right? Where there's a way of, of looking at these problems that doesn't, doesn't really differentiate between 
you know, are you a neuroscientist or are you trying to build AI? Mm-hmm. So. And do you think that being, doing the kind of philosophical work that you did and that you're more likely to be a successful merger if you've given yourself a, a little bit of an education in philosophy? In other words, is that the kind of conceptual glue? I mean, it very much feels that way in your essay that might help one reconcile these two different fields and actually more fruitfully combine them by navigating them better with a philosophical set of tools. Is that, that be fair to say that, you, that, that that's how it helps? Yeah, I think that was, that was partly my intention, definitely for the, maybe towards the end of the paper, that I wanted to be able to express kind of using um, kind of a foundation in philosophy of science, how, how we can conceptualize the kind of questions that we may want to address. And I don't need to say this is this is a question in neuroscience or this is a question in AI. Um, you know, this is the question. And if I if I say it clearly enough, you know, there'll, there'll be a variety of people who can contribute to that to solving that question, who are going to come from various fields. I mean, that's really very beautiful and subversive, right? I mean, that's exactly what I think of a deep message here is that in a way, disciplinary boundaries and perceived divisions can actually be seen as the opposite if one asks the question clearly in the way that philosophy can help you clarify your question. So it seems to me you're almost saying that science can really benefit from a little bit of that kind of mental hygiene almost, right? I mean, isn't that kind of what you're saying, especially when it gets hairy? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think you, you described the benefits of interdisciplinary cognitive competition neuroscience and trying to unify scientific goals in neuroscience and AI and, and the hope to fa- find a common roadmap and, and to go from, you know, why is by general to why specific and, and use this strategy to solve neuroscience problem, but also, you know, how the car drives over a, a bump or something like that. So maybe... Can we go uh, back to the other very uh, important question that you address is like a scientist, you know, we typically try to gain a mechanistic understanding of how a given biological phenomenon works. And we reach this understanding by objective methods, you know, experiments that test hypotheses. And we hope that the understanding that we reach is not biased by a zeitgeist and not a reflection of a subjective feeling or a personal perspective. However, this hope is contrasted by the view that some people say understanding is in the eye of the beholder. And indeed, I can tell you as an experimentalist, I can sympathize this view with this view because very often, based on the data I have, we reach an understanding that later on turns out was wrong. It was actually subjective based on certain ideas that we preconceived ideas that we had and we had to revise this understanding as new data come available and i think this is very very typical and i would actually say that i trust someone that admits that their understanding is subjective because that person is much more willing to change their understanding as new data come in so my question to you now is What are your thoughts about understanding being subjective? And in your article, 
you write and in fact emphasize that it is important that we do not mistake the sense of understanding, the subjective experience of having understood something for the genuine explanatory understanding. So could you please elaborate on this and how do we recognize when we found a genuine explanatory understanding? Jessica, long question, please <laughs> go ahead. This one is really important and really confusing. Um, it's confusing because we use this word understanding to refer to different ideas. Uh, philosophers have helped us by kind of trying to carve up the different ways that we use this word. So one thing that they, they seem to agree on, even though they disagree on lots of things, is this notion of the, the sense of understanding or what direct calls the phenomenology of understanding. So this is, like you said in the question, the, the subjective experience of having understood. So, you know, this, this is an experience that we've had that we can communicate and that probably genuinely motivates us when we're doing science. You know, we're, we're doing science because we personally want to experience understanding. But this is not an epistemic goal of science. When we're talking about what we want to progress towards, we don't just want to progress towards feeling that we understand. We want to progress towards something at, at least slightly more objective than that. And people will have lots of different ideas about, you know, how objective science is or the mechanism by which science, you know, uh, achieves something objective. But the problem with saying that understanding is in the eye of the beholder is only when we're talking about the, the goal that we're working towards. The ultimate goal, yes. So yeah, scientists, I mean, philosophers gen, um, generally seem to uh, agree on this, that the sense of understanding is, is not what we're working towards. And so uh, when we talk about explanatory understanding or when I say like genuine scientific understanding, what I mean by that is the, the understanding that comes about when we're in possession of a sort of satisfactory or true or correct explanation. So I mean, the, the danger this gets... of, of this is often that understanding can often become a dogma, you know, like, okay, I understand how this and this is generated by the brain or, you know, and then nobody asks the question anymore. And then when you start and question it, you have to cross a lot of barriers because it's so manifested. I, I remember that one time I had a manuscript that I submitted, which challenged something that people understood. And, and the reviewer said, every medical student knows that this cannot be the case. And often I think we have to realize that, that our understanding is based on what we have data available, but as new data come in, we need to revise it. And, and it's important, I think, that we are willing to revise these understandings because it can happen anytime. And I think that's maybe where the philosopher is. It's easier for the philosopher to come to that point than for an experimentalist because we rely on our methods. And I think what, what however, should always be objective is the method and, and, and the data. The data have to be true, but the interpretation mm -hmm. can be be wrong 
and 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 shaped, etc. Anyway, I I don't know. Do you agree totally, or Jessica, or, or do you think it's like wrong what I'm saying? Well, I tend to come down on more like the social epistemology side of mm -hmm. um, kind of how you know. I tend to think that science gets its subjectivity through the social interactions between scientists rather than being guaranteed by a particular methodology. But that's mm -hmm. a whole, that's a whole other conversation. Mm -hmm. But, oh, but yeah. part of, part of this is just semantics though. Right. So like when, when we look at the history of science, we've scientists have been wrong more than they've been right. Right. Oh yeah. So yeah. when we, when we look historically at like the, you know, we can say the, The, the understanding that they possessed or the, the explanations that they proposed that were incorrect, uh, according to some of the theories that I'm saying, I would, I, you know, you might say that they in fact did not understand, they misunderstood. Uh, mm -hmm. And only, you know, hundreds of years later, did we actually understand? Yeah. But you can, you can talk about it, you can talk about that same change, that same progress by saying, you know, their, their understanding um, changed from this to that but I guess for, from my perspective I'm most interested in how do we analyze how science makes progress so like when we move from a place of being like less correct to more correct what is changing and it seems like this sense of understanding like maybe you have it in equal measure when you're wrong and you're right and so it doesn't help me to explain how science progresses. Um, But at the same time, like, <laughs> let's say if you embrace that understanding can be true or wrong, then understanding becomes a really cool tool that you can challenge. And I often find understanding, the same thing as like explanations, often really good tools because they're so diverse and, and so You know, there are different forms of understanding, there are different forms of explanation, and ultimately it's their tool in, in our repertoire to move science forward. Maybe I'm too pragmatic as an experimentalist, but, but I can tell you, I, I change my opinion often. I'm willing, I love it, you know, if my students come with data that are totally against what I thought I understood. It, I, I see this all the time. And, um, well... <laughs> yeah, it's cool. But I think that's why I think it's, it's a conversation between philosophy and experimentalists and, and scientists is so fruitful and, and important and destroys barriers that we have and et cetera. So, you know, having an ultimate goal is great and we need this. I mean, I can almost push also back on, the, on your crisis of purpose. You know, like the question is, does science have to be a purpose? Like I can tell you that, for example, I'm working in a translational institute where you have a lot of clinicians and their purpose is science to use to heal a patient. And this can be very problematic because, first of all, maybe you never understand how epilepsy works. And then, then your, your science is very frustrating because you will never understand it. Or you might discover something that is not important for epilepsy, but for tumor biology. But if your purpose was to study epilepsy, then maybe you disregard the implication for, for, for the tumor biology. So, so often maybe it is very healthy 
to do science without having a direct purpose. And it's much less frustrating because you're like into this discovery mode and you're excited if you find something. And so I think like I'm a lot driven by this, you know, my God, I will, this is such a fascinating problem. Am I lucky to study something that well, I will never solve? And so this can be also a strategy. And I, maybe that's how I overcame my, my crisis of, of purpose to say, hey, you know what? Purpose is good, but, but I just love what I do. And, and, and that drives me. So anyway. Hey. Yeah, maybe it's, not, um, maybe it's not about actually reaching these goals, especially when we're, um, some of these questions are going to, you know, even if we answer them, it'll be, it'll take lifetimes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think having, having some comfort with the idea of working on a problem that you'll never see the answer to. And I think it's, it's a, it, the, the, the analogy is these people that built a cathedral in the olden days, you know, they, they knew that they will never finish the cathedral. They will never finish this project, but yet they were driven by, you know, their belief in God and, and, and doing something important irrespective of whether they finish or not. So I think maybe science is also the quest for the truth, that we believe in the truth, that we, even if we might never find the true truth, we believe in that and it, that is driving us irrespective of whether we reach the goal or not. So I think it's also important to think mm, about so that. It's definitely mm-hmm. a privilege to be able to, to work on, on topics oh. like that. Yeah, I mean, I we tell also, you, I mean, we for also me the... want science to benefit society, right? So we want exactly. to, we want to select what we spend our time on, you know, not just based on our curiosity, probably, uh, or at least not <laughs> entirely. I don't know, you know, but but you know, at the same time, you know, like while you you enjoy the act of science, at the same time, you also train a lot of young scientists that then go on and, and fulfill different types of purposes. So you, you're multiplying your purpose through the act of being a scientist. And also, I think you're, you learn to be humble, you know, because as I said, you, you're used to questioning whatever you do. And, and that also is very healthy for a society to have someone that, that doesn't get uh, you know, radical into something that may be totally wrong. And, and, and I think scientists are, are good at that. And so thereby they also help, you know, society. So I think there are multiple purposes and, and there is not only one purpose. And I think you found your purpose and I, I love it. And I was very inspired. And Jessica, let's, let's continue a little bit though, because this was such a beautiful start of the neuroscene. And, and also I want to encourage you to submit more of your ideas because we you just tackled the, the tip of the iceberg understanding explanation but i can imagine there's way more on your mind to go about it and and feel free to submit it to us and i think it's also wonderful because you really have references to to compare you know so it's not just like a an expression of your thoughts but really where does it feel go and it really shows and i think that's where, where it's beautiful is you know where is science competitive versus collaborative and also gender differences, how we see this, you know, and how we can improve science in general by, by being more collaborative as opposed to be 
competitive. What, what are your thoughts to this? Yeah, so the, the last part of the paper was about how do we take advantage of our inter interdisciplinary nature of our field. And, and, and part of that was looking at feminist philosophers of science who have, have focused on the process of doing science rather than the products of science. Mm -hmm. So uh, most of the philosophy I cover is really about, you know, uh, explanation and understanding as, as products of, of science. An alternative way of looking at it is, is saying, you know, how do we organize our scientific communities to, to optimize for desirable things like the objectivity, let's say, of, mm -hmm. um, of our work. And yeah, so one, one recommendation from this kind of feminist philosophy of science literature is that you need, the, uh, for a scientific community to be, to be healthy, it needs to be supportive of uh, scientific criticism and it needs to support uh, a diversity of perspectives. Mm -hmm. So um, sort of the epistemic authority needs to be shared equally among qualified practitioners in the field. Absolutely. So that's why it's great that, you know, you've started this, this neuroscene series, mm -hmm. which gives a chance for us to be more reflective about the science and yeah it also gives a reason for why we should uh, support efforts to broaden participation in science yeah. um, because the more perspectives that are, are presented not only does that make our science more 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 just and and, and more ethical but it also uh, according to these theories increases our capacity for objectivity yeah, um, absolutely. So that gives additional reasons for why we should care about equity, diversity, and inclusion in science. Yeah, and I think that was that that should be really the big take-home message that you know you have many levels of explanation, many levels of understanding, and that you have to cherish different ideas in this process, and you have to be inclusive because only if you are inclusive you will actually progress in science. And I think, you know, like going away from this competitive nature to the collaborative nature, I think will be essential in neurosciences because the, com the problem is so complex that a philosopher alone cannot do it. An experimentalist alone cannot do it. You have to have uh, all us together, working together. And, and the question is whether we can create a science that is much more collaborative and inclusive. And I just know that, at its current state, it is very scary to a lot of people. And uh, because, you know, like each time you submit a manuscript, you can be exposed to, to very harsh, harsh criticism that, that only sees one explanation and not the other explanation. And then, you know, your career depends on it. And I see this a lot with young scientists that are turned off by science because of exactly that, that structure, you know, where you get a score, you get a, and, and your career depends on it. And yet, I mean, what your essay beautifully writes is there are many, many forms of explanations and that we have to consider all of them if we want to make progress in understanding sciences. So, so that's why I think this is a beautiful piece of work and, and it should be a reminder for all of us how to tackle sciences. So maybe Jessica, do you want to give us some, you know, final thoughts of, you know, like, take-home messages, also gearing towards young scientists, 
because we we need some encouragement that this complex neuroscience can be solved. Do you have some ideas and thoughts that you want to share? Yeah. So if if you are experiencing a crisis of crisis of purpose or you're questioning whether you can make a meaningful contribution to science, know that you're not alone, that everyone kind of goes through that. If you feel like everyone thinks differently than you, know that that's your strength, not a weakness. It might make your life harder, but uh, let's, let's organize our science to make it so that people who think differently or who are coming in with different background assumptions can still find their way in our scientific communities. And let's, let's not be afraid of philosophy. Let's make friends with philosophers of science. We can't know everything, but we can collaborate widely. So, you know, let's, let's make friends with people who know different things than us. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm the director of an institute where we are all in soft money and often people get uh, unscored in grants, which means that it didn't fly and, and people got criticized, but Often it's these unscored, these, these grants that get really killed by reviewers that are the most interesting ones because they hit a nerve. You know, they, they basically are moving the field forward and it shouldn't discourage scientists to think, oh God, this is a failure if you get these critiques. And, and I think that's uh, something that I learned that it's, it's way more dangerous if you're like not critiqued, <laughs> you know, because it's too trivial what you say. And, and, and I think it's, it should be a good reminder for us uh, going forward that we have to en encourage this. And also, I think it's good as neuroscientists that we have to interact with philosophers. So philosophers learn from us, you know, like we can learn from philosophers, but the philosophers can also learn from us. And I think, you know, one of the beautiful thoughts that you had is that each explanation is you know or or set understanding is dependent on the different domains you know physics versus neuroscience but ultimately we want to bridge these borders that we have a similar understanding in physics as we have in neuroscience to come ultimately to the truth that we're seeking for so yeah jessica all i can say is thank you so much for submitting this article it i must i can't imagine how much work it was and you put a lot of thoughts in there and, and they're so sharp, your thoughts that it's, it will help your career, but it, most importantly, it also helps all of us in our future. So I really encourage you to submit more of those manuscripts to us and also the readers, if they have other ideas, I think this is our, our model where we want to go forward. So Jessica, thank you so much. And I wish you all the best and let's keep in touch and, and um, let's see how your science fulfills the purpose you're meant to be, you know? <laughs> so. uh, I just want to say that I, I think this essay is what all the other neuroscience essays are going to have to try and live up to. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, um, and I really do hope that, that many, many people read it and it makes them go back to the, lots of the literature because your list is really very impressive. Jessica, thanks for submitting this brilliant essay, and I'm, I'll be forever in debt. And uh, thank you so much. Hope we meet in person soon. All the thank best. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for publishing the paper, and thank you for having me on the, the podcast. Hope for your great questions. 
Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.